Hello, and welcome to the Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I'm Dana Marie Rockmore, the founder of the Dinner Party Project and co-founder of The Welcome House. I'll be inviting intriguing guests over to my home to chat about some of my favorite things, cocktails, story, the Enneagram, and rest. Hello, friends. Happy spring. Um, if you're in Orlando, you know that we're holding on to this last few beautiful moments before it's about to get blazing hot, too hot, in my opinion, for the summer. But um, in the mornings and evenings, God, it's so glorious and I love it. I wanted to never leave, but here we are. So um, today's guest, I'm very excited um, for you to listen in on <clears throat> and get, I got to learn so much more about uh, what Jen does and the Reed Foundation and what she is, what has she has created for the past four years. And there are, I feel like so many people that have uh, a need to learn more about dyslexia and the challenges that come along with not being able to read, which is a really a foundational thing for life. I feel that every human should have the right to be able to learn and be taught in a way that they can understand how to read without being able to read. It's a really hard way to make it through life. So I hope you enjoy her story in full. Um, and if you have any need to reach out and connect with, um, with Jen and the Reed Foundation and what she's doing um, with dyslexia, this is a great resource for the community. So um, at the very end, she'll give the contact information. Please feel free to reach out. Uh, the cocktail that we did today was also, I feel very spring and light. And um, I asked her kind of what she was in the, the mood for on a Tuesday afternoon. And so she had said vodka and I said, okay, we can make that happen. Uh, super, super, super easy. It's really four ingredients. Um, and I would actually adjust it a little bit from how I served it today. I just kind of pulled all the things together and made a, made a cocktail that was very delicious, but, um, I would get a Collins glass or highball glass and fill it with ice. I added an ounce of Tito's. I would probably bump that to an ounce and a half and then, um, about an ounce, uh, probably 0.75 to an ounce of St. Germain and then a half an ounce of um, limoncello. Gosh, I love limoncello. I got some limoncello from Pellegrini Market locally and they make the limoncello locally from Meyer Lemons in their mom's backyard. And I am very here for it. It is so delicious. So I shook all that up in a cocktail shaker for very little amount of time, 30 seconds, maybe a minute. And then um, I would pour that over ice into a Collins glass and then I topped it off with club soda. So I wanted it to be not like, it's not very sweet. Tonic water would add a little bit more sweetness to it, but it's a, it's a great little spring summer drink. So I hope you enjoy that. I hope you enjoy this episode and cheers. All right, Jen. Welcome to Cocktails and Conversation. Thank you so much. You're Thanks welcome for having so much. Me. Thanks for being here. Cheers to you. Cheers to you Wish as we well. We were a little bit closer. I we know. could cheers, but we'll just 
Cheers. Yes. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. Mm-mm-mm. Very impressive, I must say. <laughs> just whipped it on up. Just whipped it on up on a Tuesday morning mm-hmm. um, for some day drinking. <laughs> I know. <Right. laughs> Look at me. Why not? <laughs> I was just saying, I ha- hope my 15-year-old daughter uh, doesn't judge me later when I um, go to pick her up. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I think it will be all good. <laughs> um, so the cocktail that we made today was Tito's vodka. Love Always a staple. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Some Saint Germain elderflower liqueur, mm-hmm. which is one of my absolute favorites. Um, mm-hmm. And then a limoncello that I got from Pellegrini Market. Mm-hmm. So they do local limoncello from like a backyard, their mom's backyard. And it's like, oh, I could drink it all day. <laughs> and then just shook that up in a shaker and topped it with club soda. Yeah, it's so amazing. Not too sweet, not no. too boozy, but light, flavorful, summery. Yes. All the things. It's a perfect April morning drink. Drink. Nailed <laughs> it. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Speaking of perfect drinks, um, are you at all a home bartender? And do you have any favorite cocktails, like go-to drinks that you like? I have to admit that I'm definitely not... Um, a home bartender. I feel like I have several people in my family that are really good at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I try to stick with what I know that I'm good at and uh, don't try to dabble in things necessarily that I know are not my uh, gifting. Okay. But I love, I mean, I think I'm like, I'm, I'm a probably a basic B when it comes to um, drinking. Like I like a Moscow mule. Mm-hmm. If I'm at the beach, I'm like a pina colada kind of gal. Like I'm sure. pretty simple, I okay. would say. Um, I used to really like red wine, but now I feel like I don't feel good after I mm. drink it. So okay. I'm definitely a white wine gal at this point. If mm-hmm. we're if we're going for wine, sure. And I like a gimlet. I enjoy. Oh I enjoy my gosh, I yeah. love a gimlet. So, mm-hmm. but I am admittedly. Uh, a lightweight and probably like a one drink kind of gal. Yeah, one and done. If we're going to make it out alive. Okay. Um, But definitely friends enjoy a two drink to three drink gin. That does not happen a ton. Often. Yes. Okay. Does not happen. But on occasion, she shows up. On occasion, when the timing is right. Yeah. But very rarely. Very rarely. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one drink. Mm -hmm. Enjoy a cocktail mm-hmm. um, with the rest of your evening. Yes. I'm definitely a food gal. Yes. So I tend to like my um, calories coming ah. from food Fair also. Mm-hmm. I'm not one to typically avoid dessert. I'm usually somebody that's like, yeah, Pretty strong. Go ahead and please bring out that menu. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I will spend my calories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please and thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay, fair enough. Around town in this Central Florida area, where would be like two, three places that you would love to grab a cocktail and or dessert? Hmm. Um, what are your favorites? Well, I think, um, and probably this is most people, I love Houston's. I feel mm-hmm. like they're just, well, I guess it's Hillstone. I still always call it Houston's. Houston's. Um, but you know, the scenery is perfect and it's kind of one of the only places in town that, that evening lakeside, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that moment, 
Um, I have to say I love uh, for dessert and my daughter has gotten into this with me. Sometimes we just eat dinner or like just have dessert for dinner. Fair enough. Um, and that is glass knife. Oh yes. Um, fancy desserts. Very much enjoy their red velvet cake. Okay. Um, with the cheesecake layers and the mm. icing, it brings it. It feels like a sugar coma. It brings it. Right. Um, I usually regret it afterwards, like the, you know, cause it's a pretty <clears throat> big slice of cake. Right. But it's really good going down. And, um, I also... If I'm talking dessert and drinks, um, I and this is not drinks, but I also think P is for pie. Mm. Absolutely brings it mm-hmm. on Corinne. Um, they make a French silk pie mm-hmm. that is absolutely out of this world. And what I will say is, and I hope they're listening to this, they have <laughs> stopped just custom making it if you order. And it's very upsetting. Mm. So for my birthday in February, my husband, God bless him, tried to get me my very, very favorite, which is the P is for pie, French silk pie. Mm -hmm. And we got denied. So I haven't had it in a while. Okay. Um, Because you have to have it when they offer it. When yeah. it's on offer. And and when's a gal supposed to know this? Sure. Right? Like You I need like know. a text alert. I do. Peas replied directly to Jen to say This we, is the month. Right. This is the moment. Come this get your French silk pie. Mm-hmm. So those are my favorite dessert places, I would say. The financier has a awesome croissant. Awesome. Okay. On Park Avenue. Yes. I've been there so a couple of times. If you haven't had their croissant and mm-hmm. you enjoy a real legit croissant, that's if we're the also place. speaking of croissants, have you had buttermilk bakery? Uh buttermilk break bakery also brings it. <sighs> yes. Their croissants are like my dreams. I know. In my dreams, They're all amazing. I mean everything there. Yes. Every single like savory to sweet. Delicious. But I am a I am a fiend for a good croissant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me I too. taught my my niece is three, and um, I taught her. She had this little like bakery toy thing set up, and then she had there's little, and I was like, "This is a croissant," <laughs> and so I taught her how to say croissant, mm-hmm. and so it's pretty cute. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so good croissant. And I feel like maybe I'm a dessert girl too, because it is something that, you know, my, my daughter, like that's something we can go, you know, and do together and, Mm. and, um, not drinking yet. We're not there yet. Fair enough. So (laughs) someday (laughs) I'll have a better list of things, uh, in terms of drinks when I'm taking her and she's old enough to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But when you offer a sweet treat, that's Mm -hmm. the sweet treat is usually more in the dessert department than a drinking department. <laughs> yes. yes. In this sure. season of life. Mm-hmm. Fair yes. enough. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I am somebody that probably, I do love a dessert, but I also probably drink my desserts mm-hmm. and more than maybe I eat them. <laughs> yeah. As much as I would, as much as I do love, you know, a dessert as well. I mean, I will still eat a dessert. <laughs> But at the end of the night, sometimes I like I find I'll find myself making making a little treat of a drink mm-hmm. just to reward myself at the end of a long day. Yeah, I definitely think I'm in the minority on the um, baked goods uh, at the end of the day. Um, 
category. I don't think it, most of my friends, I would say they're like, really? Like you're going to eat an entire slice of cake for dinner. <laughs> like, Don't judge me. Yes. I am. Yeah. But well, you're going to have three glasses of wine before you get to bed. So <laughs> same amount of sugar. Uh, I know, but I do think I'm, I'm in the minority that way, but I believe that my people are also out there and they are oh, struggling yeah. to get out and say, Hey, me too. So hopefully my baked girl, baked goods girls are out there. Oh, they're, they're definitely out there. And they're like, thank you for saying you eat a baked good instead. <laughs> no, that's a, a, a certainty that, yeah, an end of the night. Sometimes it's also end of the night cheese shoveling yes. in my mouth. Yes, yes that is that a, a huge weakness of mine. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's definitely kind of like I was mentioning before. Everything in moderation, include moderation. So mm -hmm. every once in a while, you just got to go gotta little go nuts, mm -hmm. right? But most of the time, kind of reeling it in, mm -hmm. making sure that we're somewhat healthy yeah. along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> as I've gotten older, I've realized that I cannot drink as late as I used to yeah. or eat a sweet. Like I can't do a 9 p.m. sweet. Like that sugar will either keep me up or wake me up. Yes. Which is annoying. Very annoying. Because I love a nightcap, like a drink, mm -hmm. like after dinner drink. And man, like if I have a drink at 1030 these days, sometimes like the weekend you're like, all right, well, this is, you know, it is what it is. And you just know. Yeah. There's something. What you're signing up for. There's something about the age piece, you know, too. Like I just turned 44 and um, I'm definitely hitting that I'm exhausted, but it's hard to, it's hard to like unwind and, you know, go to sleep phase mm -hmm. or I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm exhausted, still exhausted, but yeah. like wide awake, yeah. wide awake. And I, I, that, that whole like insomnia thing is, you know, starting to kind of happen. I'm like, no, I don't yeah. want this. <laughs> I, I am literally in the middle of that right now yeah. and have been for a couple of years where it's just like, it's so frustrating because my body is so tired. And then I do try to like maybe write out a couple of things or sometimes like make notes of things that I know that I have to do mm -hmm. to like get it out of my head. Yes. But unless I'm running two and a half miles or like sometimes like doing, having like a really... I don't I can't I can't put my finger on it but it's like the sleep thing is more frustrating than it's ever been yeah and it's at a point where I'm like I need to sleep the most right now and <laughs> WTF oh, <laughs> I, I don't want to be awake at 2 a.m I know I want to be sleeping I know yeah. I'm, I'm having the same thing and trying it and I'm doing the same thing too waking up and like okay if I just make notes really quick uh -huh. then maybe I won't be obsessing about that. And then I do worry because I, I will forget if I don't, if I don't write it down. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, I was totally worried about something last night and now I don't even know what it, was. What it is. That's not great. Right. So I have started making myself. Yeah. Take notes. Take the, yeah. Take the note. Take the and note. that's like across the board, even during the day now. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, that's a really important thought. Like, you're not going to forget that. And literally 10 minutes later, I'm like, you have forgotten that. <laughs> I cannot believe Welcome it. to our world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So I invited you over because part of this podcast in life is kind of like our stories. Mm -hmm. And I kind of believe that we don't get a choice in where we are placed in the universe. And so 
here we are. We show up in the world and like everyone else, we have to figure it out from there. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to know a little bit more about your story and kind of like where you were placed in the universe and your family of origin and kind of like where, where you were born, if you have siblings and kind of what family was like from maybe like zero to five, kind of like where was the origins mm -hmm. of Jen? Yeah. So I grew up and, and was born and raised in Ocala, Florida, okay. which is, you know, the Not horse country far. capital. Yeah. Yeah. It's and really up and coming right now. I it feel. is. It's huge compared to when I lived there. And sure. um, we lived there because my dad was a, a veterinarian, but ultimately specialized in equine um, veterinary work. That and would so, be the place to be. That's right. So yeah. I grew up on a horse farm um, out in actually fellowship on Highway 27 and you know nothing out there at all didn't have like there was no cable like nothing like we had two tv channels i think one was pbs and i don't know what the other <laughs> one was um and so i was outside all the time i had tons of animals um i had a really actually sweet um childhood but my parents got divorced when i was like six years old or mm. like you know separated around mm -hmm. that time I have an older brother who's three years older than me. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's like, I, I I don't remember much of my parents being married. Together. I remember mostly everything that, you know, came after. I found um, a tape, a cassette tape. I don't know, maybe like five years ago, my mom was, you know, cleaning out her house and, you know, it says like, you know, Jenny's tape on it or whatever. And so I put it in this old um, like boom box thing that we had. And it was me at like five or six years old. And I'm, you know, recording myself singing. And before each song, I'm like, this is something that a girl who's six, whose parents are getting divorced mm. would sing. And I just start singing about horses because I'm looking out the window and I can see the horses. And you can hear my brother come in. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, stop. And, you know, there's this like tension, tension. And I'm like, right. I'm recording myself. And he's like, no, you're not. And then he like realizes I am. And then the very next thing is the song, um, sad song, say so much. Like we're trying to sing that song on, you know, the radio. You can hear it in the background. Um, and that is like the first real memory, you know, that I have really mm. of, of like that time. So my parents got divorced when I was young and, um, and it was, it was, and still is like, even all this time later, a thing. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm certain that, you know, when we talk about Enneagram and all those things, <laughs> certain that, that wanting to please them, wanting to mm. not be, the reason that they were arguing, um, you know, wanting to be a really good kid. So mm -hmm. that was not an issue is probably like explains the entire trajectory of mm. like my personality and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of who I am and like from an integrity and like truth perspective, like those things are really, really important to me, mm. um, you know, and honoring your promises and, and like, keeping your word being a woman like, of your word yeah yeah like you know if i really look back mm. you know it starts basically as early as i can remember but those years are so formative right mm. we're, we're forming our 
reality of the world. We don't know any better, right? At six, there's so many things that have no, we have no concept of, right? At that time, except for our like immediate surroundings. So you're trying to, mm-hmm. you know, figure out which way is up and then figuring out the best coping mechanisms to make things work and okay. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's so interesting how those years really do shape us and then from out of that we have to formulate the rest of life that comes right that comes at us and then we have that lens and and hopefully if we have the wherewithal later to be able to see how that affected us and then you know be walking towards health you know in whatever ways that we can but how how we internalize that at such a young age Mm -hmm. i think it's so interesting because i think it's i mean we'll get into this later but so much of our DNA of like what we were given that we didn't have choice. And then a lot of our circumstances that shape like who we are throughout our life. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. So interesting. Mm -hmm. So how did, how did you show up? What were, what was like middle school, high school? Like who was Jen in middle school? Like what, what was that time in life about? I, um, were you on the honor roll? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I was, um, because we lived on the horse farm, uh, you know, the schools out where we lived were, you know, not schools that my parents necessarily wanted me to go to. So my brother and I both went to a private K through eighth grade Episcopalian school, one class per grade. And so, you know, very small school in town. And so I grew up with the same, you know, I, I don't know what the max number was in the class. Maybe it was 20 or 25. So maybe like two or three kids would fluctuate in and out right. from K through eighth grade. But otherwise, I literally every went to year s- you had the same class. Yes. Much. So it wasn't until like middle school that we had cotillion mm-hmm. and then you could like mix with other kids, you know, sixth, seventh and eighth grade and, you know, public school And, you know, so then I like had that awareness that there were, you know, other kids in the world and that we were, you know, became kind of became friends with. And then when I graduated, um, like from eighth grade from the school, the next step was like the big public um, high school. So I went to Forest High School and um, I, you know, public school, public. Yeah. So, you know, I went from 20 kids in my class or 22 or 25, you know, whatever it was to over a thousand, you know, Oof. kids in your class. Right. But my brother was a senior um, and, you know, a good kid and had a nice, you know, group of friends. And um, I made the cheerleading squad, you, you know, try out in eighth grade and it picked 10 girls and lots of girls tried out and cheerleading was cool in my, you know, high school. And so that I think set me up well to start, you know, the school year. Yeah. Cause you already had like a group that you could yeah. be identified with. Exactly. It's so important in high school. Yeah. Like, I mean, hopefully you're especially when you don't know anybody. Especially when you don't know anybody. You right. know, like lots of people are coming in from other, you know, public schools and know a lot of kids. You may not be friends with everybody, but mm-hmm. you know, you're not walking into a class of a thousand or whatever it was and you know five people. Mm-hmm. You know, that was kind of my scenario, although I knew, you know, some people or whatever from from Cotillion. So I actually really had a great high school, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely had like a serious boyfriend that was not a great experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm sure, again, that goes back to all the things I dealt with when I was younger. 
but my experience as a whole, I was a good student and, um, you know, I, I, I dabbled a little bit in trying to get in trouble in my freshman year. Fair enough. Uh-huh. And I got caught both times. Two and, times. Uh-huh. Oh, girl. So we I are realized, at different levels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just realized, not like, too. trouble's not for me. Like, I'm not good at... Um, How did you react to being... Sneaking. And, well, I mean, so when I got in trouble, like, I really got in trouble. So we were, like, drinking freshman year. Same. And um, I'm in a park with my best friend two other boys that there was nothing going on there just friends but apparently two men and two women had uh robbed a jiffy store and they were in a pickup truck and had been sighted going into the park that we were in so we are two boys and two girls in a pickup truck in this park could you were your freshman year oh yeah but in the dark in the middle of the night the police don't Uh, necessarily uh know so when the FBI narcotics department like holds you like, you know, up with hands up in the air and guns drawn because they think you're the people uh, that rob, like that's the kind of trouble I manage. Yeah. To, in to, a small and, town. So of course they realize okay. it's not us and we're okay. But of course they call everybody's parents and everybody else's parents were like, Hey, could you just not do that again? But my parents, my mom was not like, hey, could you just not do that again? I was like grounded for six months. So, you know, she'd just sit in front of me while I was cheering. Like she, I, I still had to do all my obligations for school. Sure. But I was not allowed to talk on the phone. Social. Or social <gasps> or do anything. So you're cut <clears throat> off. I was cut off. Cut dry. Mm-hmm. So I had that, ha- like the second one was not nearly as dramatic as that one. But nonetheless, I managed to get in trouble you know, twice. And the punishment in my house was pretty severe. severe. So I just was kind of like, you know, maybe I'll just, and of course that also caused the fighting of my parents and who's doing, who's messing her up and who's not, you know, paying attention and who's the not good parent. And so I think all those things combined, I ended up being. Say it's not worth it. Yeah. Like I really, I was like overly a good, you know, kid. Mm. Um, I probably should have had more fun than I did. Did you feel as those teenage years were happening that that was your role to, or or like that was on you for your parents to not be like getting along well? I don't know if I knew it then you know what I mean like I don't know if I like consciously was like I have to be good for them uh-huh. but I definitely didn't like what happened when there was mm, a problem sure. you know I was like acutely aware of that and so whatever I could do to and avoid that, that I wanted to avoid I wanted to avoid that and definitely like you know um in my junior year my, you know, my dad remarried a couple of times and, you know, he was remarried for the third and final time. He's still married to, um, my second stepmom, and, um, they like stopped talking to me like in my junior year. So my dad, Your um, dad stopped talking to you. Yeah. So I didn't have like a relationship with my, my dad for over two years. So didn't come to my high school graduation. In high school? Yes. I didn't walk me for homecoming court. 
Um, I mean, more like, you know, just family, family, you know, drama. Sure. Um, I, I can't ever really know what the, you know, reasoning behind yeah. that was. But um, that was pretty, like, catastrophic for me because I just, you know, I think, like, most girls just adore um, adore my dad. Mm. Um, and so then in college, I went to University of Florida. Mm-hmm. And in college, you know, I just kind of sucked it up and was just like, I just want to have a relationship with you. Whatever I have to, I'll do whatever I have to do, you know, to have yeah. a relationship with you. Like, yeah. I just can't have that, like, gaping hole of not having a dad in your life. My dad. Sure. Yeah. And so he was receptive at that time to say like was he ever like I'm sorry that I couldn't didn't show up couldn't show up you I think that no so no my dad's never said that to me mm-hmm. but um you know I think my dad feels feels that way but you know there's kind of a dynamic there that you know makes it difficult for some of those things you know to be mm-hmm. to be said yeah. I think yeah Express. yeah so that's hard. You know, that's one of those things that yeah. like has never actually. And that um, can't be taken back, yeah. right? Like not showing up for your homecoming. That's like a pretty big, yeah. you know, loss in that way. To yeah. To have that moment with your dad. Mm-hmm. I think that um, that's maybe one of the saddest things, you know, about, about divorce and just like human relationships in general. Mm. You know, the decisions we make you know, sometimes when we're, um, you know, mad or there's pressure, you know, coming from other angles or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't, you can, you can apologize and people can forgive, but you can never get those, you know, moments back. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, one of the things I really like with my own children, especially, Mm -hmm. um, that no matter what goes on um, or if they hurt my feelings or I'm disappointed or whatever, you know, it might be that just always being really consciously aware that um, the things I do and say and the way I treat them, you know, has long-term consequences. Sure. Even some small things, you know, like I don't think we realize how we impact people sometimes with the things we say and do. But I have like, yeah, you know, Mm -hmm. an acute um, awareness of that. So I try really hard to be um, conscious of In the moment, how Mm -hmm. we, yeah, the words that we say, our actions, how they seem maybe flippant at the time, but we kind of never know how they land with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you landed at UF, Mm -hmm. correct? Okay. And then kind of like, how were those years? Also very formative years. And then how, from there, how did you land in Orlando? Yeah. So I, um, I was a psychology major. (gasps) Same. Yes. In undergrad. And, um, I, and I was in a sorority and I was active in that maybe for two years, but I, I think that personality type of mine, I started working, um, I worked out at a gym called Gainesville Health and Fitness Center. Okay. And my, my now husband was a trainer there 
and like, and was a manager or whatever there. And one of the other guys at the gym was like, you're always here. Like, you know, you could have a free membership if you just worked here. (laughs) And it was, it was an expensive, you know, gym to be a part of. And so I interviewed at this gym. My husband, Andrew was the third, it was like a three interview process. And the third interview is a workout interview <laughs> where, and their like deal was. What does that even mean? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So like their, their third, there they had to interview me and they'd be like, you're not hired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get out of here. So like they, they have, you know, a, it's a huge gym, but they have these, they call them lines and there, I don't know how many there are now. It's been a long time since I've been there, but like a full body workout of machines on a line and there's trainers at all of those like in stations there to help people that don't know how to set up their machine or just want to get a quick like 20 minute workout and the trainer sets up the machine for them and the weights and you're supposed to do one set to failure. Uh And so that was like the third interview was you have to do the line and like go through that process and you know, I'm sure they're looking to be a trainer for you. Yeah. To like work out there because one of the things you're going to do is work on the line. So you need to know what it is oh, and got it. you know, okay. like you've got to be able to take people through it. So my husband who is, I didn't know him and I'd never seen him before was like, okay, so I don't know if you've ever done this before. If you've ever been here, lots of people throw up. Do you know where the bathroom is? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he's like, okay, you know, if you get sick, like just, if you feel sick, you know, just go, you know, you can run to the restroom. He's like, you smell really good. Is that your deodorant or your perfume? (laughs) I was like, who is this guy? I don't know how we ended up being married, but we are. And so (laughs) I was also still married. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. uh, 21 years next month. Oh, congrats. Yeah. So I met him when I was a sophomore, he was a junior. So I was 19 and he was 20 and went through, you know, undergrad together and I, um, I actually worked at the Rape Crisis Spouse Abuse Center also as, as part of my like psychology oh, degree. You know, sure. you were supposed to be interning somewhere. Just like a lighthearted job. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, like you had different places you could choose. And so that was, a, I, I worked at a couple different ones, but that's the one I spent the most time in. And, you know, victims of violent crime were often asking, you know, what was happening with their criminal case. And from a counseling perspective, we had no idea. We had no idea about the law. We weren't in communication with, Mm. you know, the police department. We had no idea, you know, public defender's office. We had no idea what was going on. But for most victims of violent crime, knowing what is going on with the person that committed that crime against you is a big part of like the healing process. And so I kind of started feeling like, I feel like I need to go to law school because I could get out of law school and start kind of a business where we're providing, you know, counseling to victims of violent crime, but also, you know, legal support. And um, so that's so cute that I thought that, you know, at like 20 and 21 years old. So I did go to law school. My husband did too. Uh, We went to actually Stetson. Okay. And, um, and we treated that like a full-time you know, job. We both. So, so let's back up for yeah. one second. Mm-hmm. So how did you, like, you meet this man at a gym, <laughs> but like, how did this progress into you feeling like this is my guy? <laughs> like, were you, was it immediate? Were you, you were dating the manager? I mean, what's happening here? Yeah, no, he was pretty relentless <clears throat> in the pursuit of, 
you know, spending, yes, spending time with me. So, you know, he's showing up at my sorority house, you know, and in the middle of the night wanting to talk and, um, you know, just was, there was a relentless pursuit of uh, my attention. Okay. And were you um, also dating in college? So I had had the same like high school boyfriend for like five Oof. years and i had i had finally was it a good it was not it good it was not a good no, it was not good um um but it took me until like my in between my soft my freshman year and sophomore year of college to finally really like break that off it was very hard at home um you know that w- it was just a very intense um, he is a very intense person um, and a little bit scary. I'm sure he's a wonderful person now. I can't speak to that, but mm-hmm. um, certainly don't want to speak badly about anybody. But that was like way too in- in- intense a relationship for that age. that age. And it started so young, you know, so <clears throat> I really didn't. I knew that it was unhealthy, but I was in this little town and it was like you couldn't really escape it. Uh, I felt like I couldn't, you know, escape it. And finally, did your parents have any like oversight into like maybe this is yes. is not a healthy yes for space sure for you to be, but not you know like that became a weird thing with them too, where my mom was concerned, but my dad like befriended you know him and his parents, and anyway, it was just a weird you know like. At the end of the day, and nobody really understood and knew, you know, Mm -hmm. what was going on. I certainly wasn't, you know, in my world of trying to make everything be just so. That was definitely not just so. So, you know, I had to, my mom obviously knew it wasn't healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, She definitely didn't know the degree to which, you know, it wasn't. Um, But I did. And I knew it was not good. I just, uh, I needed to be able to make, you know, a clean break. Mm. So I moved into the sorority house and, you know, cause uh, prior to that I was living like on my own in an apartment. It was just not, I was not safe. You know, that was kind of the bottom line, but being in, in a sorority house with, you know, however many other people living there right. and everything's locked up and whatever it was, I, you know, I was safer. Um, and so my husband is so different than this other personality type. Were you still with him your freshman year? I was. Yeah. So I would drive back and forth, you know, home to, you know, Ocala, like every weekend. Was he in college? He, well, no, he, he, he had dropped out. He had a football scholarship and dropped out because I was a senior in high school and he was like, worried. you know, it was just, like I say, very obsessive possessive, you know, emotionally unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. Relationship. Um, and so I think part of my attraction to Andrew too, my husband is that he was so different. He liked that his friends were friends with me. He liked that. Um, I had friends. He liked, like, I've always been an outgoing personality. Mm. And I think that in my high school boyfriend, that's initially what he liked about me. But then once I was actually his girlfriend, well, he didn't want anybody else to like me or think that I was nice or funny or outgoing or, you know, any of those sorts mm. of things. And he kind of wanted me like in a little in a little glass jar. And um, 
you know, Andrew is so different in that you know, the things that he liked about me and were, and I think was attracted to like before we were together are things he celebrates about me being together, you know, when we are together, it's yeah. not something that he's wanting me to not, not be for anybody else, but him, if that makes sense. So you saw that. And then after he made a real solid effort, <laughs> yeah. he said, okay, I got with you, but yeah. we also were together. Yeah. So we, so we, I mean, dated all through, you know, undergrad and we actually, I was engaged to him when I was a senior and undergrad Okay, and then went to law school, you know, together. Did your parents like him? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think everybody was scared that we were that young. Sure. You know, and hadn't made career decisions yet. And yeah, yeah, it is young. Um, and, and it was really hard, you know, like we went to law school together and, um, you know, both like took that very seriously and did well. And thankfully that was the case so that we kind of had options. So, you know, we interviewed over here in Orlando, we lived obviously, I don't know for, I don't know if viewers or listeners know this, but Stetson law school is actually like mm-hmm. over in St. Pete, mm-hmm. like Gulfport, Tampa area. And, um, while we loved it over there, of course, we knew a bunch of people and judges and lawyers because that's where we were for law school. It didn't feel like home to us. He grew up in Gainesville and I grew up in Ocala. So Orlando is oak trees and green grass and, you know, not rocks in the yard and, and palm trees. And it just felt more like home here. I do have rocks in my yard and I have palm trees. I know I have palm trees too. And I have rocks, but I also have, um, azalea bushes and magnolia trees and green grass and Mm -hmm. you know like we have kind of like the mix um (laughs) and we have water uh so so it's a it's a nice mix of both but it felt more like this felt more like home to us Mm. than so we we um we were summer associates at law firms here in orlando between our second and third years and then both got job offers at those law firms after and so we finished up our third year of law school and then moved to Orlando in 2003. Mm-hmm. Okay, 2003. Yes. So you've been here also almost 20 years. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So got married, finished law school. And was your trajectory still wanting to be in that space of assisting like domestic abuse or abuse victims? Or like what was the... Yeah. The desire at 20. So at this point, you're right. So young 20s, mm-hmm. mid 20s. 20, 20, um, I guess out of law school, 23, mm-hmm. 23. And um, no, so like out of, I mean, I think I've always had a pretty like altruistic vein sort of running, you know, through my life, like always kind of seeing things and feeling like that's not right. That should be different like that. I don't think has ever gone away. I've mm-hmm. always had that. Um, but out of law school and, and during law school, I feel like a big part of that was like, if you do really good in law school, you need to go to a big law firm. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of, you know, the focus that, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I did well and, and, and that you should go to a big law firm. And we also, you know, went to a private law school. So student debt out the wazoo as opposed to, you know, if we'd gone to UF and and that sort of thing. So, you know, you also feel this pressure that you really need to make a certain amount of 
money. You Your know, reality is coming for you. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, there's <laughs> right. like, and both of you too, too. Yes, right. Both of us, right. both of us. So, um, so that I think, you know, I was, uh, I went to work at Holland and Knight um, mm. here in Orlando mm-hmm. and it is such a tremendous group of human beings, mm-hmm. like so incredibly blessed that that's where I got to start my career. And those are the people that I got to learn from mm-hmm. um, and get to know in this community. Uh, so, you know, that's where I started my um, career. And um, in 2015, I, um, and I, got, I actually was pregnant with our first child um, that I ended up losing like halfway mm. through our pregnant. Well, I had to deliver him. There were complications and I had to deliver him early mm-hmm. and, and we lost our first son. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. probably the first time truly in my life that there was nothing I could do no matter how hard I tried. Mm-hmm no matter how badly I wanted that to work, you know, be different, there was nothing I could, you know, do very hopeless sort of, um, you know, feeling. Mm -hmm. And I think that litigation became very frustrating for me during that time, even though I love advocacy and I knew I was good at it. Mm. I did not love arguing about, whether or not I'm entitled to certain documents under the rules of civil procedure that you know I'm gonna get, but we're gonna fight about it because that's what lawyers do and it's gonna cost our clients money. Mm. Like I I got very clear on like what's important. You know, Mm. like I believe in the judicial system and it's very important and there's lots of, um, you know, this is on the civil side, not the criminal side. There's lots of disputes and things that they're valid disputes and we need to figure out like, Mm. how can we justly come to a resolution and Mm -hmm. those things are appropriate and they should happen. But there's so much within it that is not appropriate and not necessary. And you're arguing to argue and it's costing people money. And I just like lost my spirit for it. it. Yeah, I really did. Um, and that was also when the real estate market here in Orlando, that was like the first insane, like boom of commercial real estate in my like lifetime as a lawyer and all those sorts of things. So I then went up to the commercial real estate group. This is 2012. This was, this was 2005, six. Oh, five, six. Yeah. So, so um, we're right before. Yeah. So I was like helping with the title work and everything with, with Baldwin park and like developing all of that. So, um, so that was really cool and I had to learn a bunch of new things and it was a good way to like recenter myself. And then I had my daughter, Mackenzie, who's now 15, um, in August, late August of, um, 2006. Mm. So then I, um, I ended up going in house for the Holler family and Frank Hamner, who is their general counsel. He also has an outside practice of like architects and engineer, um, defense litigation, and, uh, you know, Holland and Knight, like part-time was still like, you know, 40 billable hours a week. Ooh, and that's not part-time. <laughs> no, it's not. Especially like, are you in, have a newborn? Yeah. It, it just was, you know, I loved it so much, but I, I needed, I don't know what I would have done had I not lost my son, mm. but I knew that, um, you know, I wanted to be there for Kenzie and, be her mom and help raise her and not have somebody else doing that. Um, so 
that was a good transition for me. And I got to learn so much, uh, you know, being kind of in-house and tackling all sorts of different issues. Uh, the negative I would say is that I never got to really specialize in anything when I practice law and my personality type, like I like to be really, <laughs> you know, good at a thing and not a niche. Yeah. Not right. like a Jane kind of of all trades. And then I had, um, really went through like fertility struggles and, and, and but finally had my son read. Mm-hmm. And, um, after I had read, I stopped practicing for a little bit. And then my husband wanted to go out on his own. He's obviously attorney also, and does plaintiffs like catastrophic, uh, live products, liability cases and medical malpractice cases, really like big, big plaintiffs cases and wanted to go out on his own, which is really scary. Um, cause you're not working cause I'm time. not working right. yep. <laughs> and he was making a great living and, you know, and had a good quality of life and which, you know, on the defense side, you kind of don't have as great a quality of life because the way you make money is billing time. Whereas on the plaintiff side, it's about whether or not you win, you know, you're not billing time, you're, you're, it's contingency and it's like how it all works out in the end. Mm-hmm. So, um, that was scary, but I, I went into that process of helping him start his law firm. I knew we could never work together like long-term. We sure. couldn't study together. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but we did that, that you know. a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, and some cu- couples can do it and like kill sure. it. And and he and I are a yin and yang. And like in some ways, I like we would be a great team if we if we could do it. But we just, in, in the practice of law, we just can't. We're just so different. And, um, but anyway, once the firm was successful, um, and you know, financially stable, I left and went back to Holland at night for a little bit Okay, and, um, worked for Jim C who's just an incredible, he just retired in December, but, um, and actually is on the board for Reed charitable foundation. Now mm. he's like, uh, he's like a dad to me, um, and just an incredible human being. And, uh, but Reed, my little guy started mm-hmm. having you know, some struggles in school mm-hmm. and it got to where, you know, Jim said to me and he's so just such a, and this is circa what, like what this time is, are we? This is like 20, I guess, 14, 2014, 15. Sure. Um, you know, he was like, you know, Jen, you'll only be as happy is your least happy child, child, which is really true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, I don't want you to feel like you have to, you know, make everybody happy. Like at the end of the day, you know, you've got to, you've got to make sure that you take care of Reed because if he's not okay, you won't be okay. And, um, I needed, I needed him to tell me that because I was so, so loyal, you mm. know, to him that, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have given it up. I would have continued to spread myself. Without him releasing you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to tell me that it was, it was okay. And, right. and we were going to be okay, you know, and I wasn't going to lose him, which probably goes back to my dad, not, you know, like me losing sure. that relationship mm-hmm. and being so afraid that that would happen with somebody else that mm-hmm. I valued and, and appreciated like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, gave me that gift of letting it be okay. And I probably stayed like another two or three months until I knew they had, you know, somebody else on and helped kind of get them up to speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that was really started the journey of like where I am now. Mm. 
That's a lot, <laughs> right? We don't get to choose into how life turns out. We don't get to choose into, like, I think nobody, no matter circumstances, low or high socioeconomic status, um, no one, I think, gets a pass at loss and grief, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's kind of in parts of what we do with that and how we move forward through it. And life is not fair and not everyone has a fair playing playing ground. I, I don't say that in, in any respects, but in, the, in those um, realities that we all find ourselves in, it's like, okay, now we're here. And then how do we move through that? Mm-hmm. And how do we move through to life, right? And there is life from beginning to end, but there is um, seasons that can be more heartbreaking, devastating. There are seasons that can be more, but we're always going to hold joy and sorrow, mm-hmm. I feel like, throughout our life. And so sometimes the joy is strongly prevalent and then sometimes the, the heartbreak is really intense yeah and that's okay too and mm-hmm. so with that it's not always going to be in that space but we have to if we don't i think look at it and feel it then it will come out some other way mm-hmm. but kind of how was this season with your son like kind of like starting to like understand some of the places that he was in and really trying to understand because probably a lot of it wasn't something that was something you had experienced Mm -hmm. or like how did how did you look at that saying like okay like I do need to maybe take a break from my career be able to focus on my son and then how did you move through that to kind of like where your endeavors are today yeah, I think that um, I definitely didn't have the same school experience, you know, that that Reed had. My mm-hmm. experience was more like my daughter's where, um, you know, reading, writing and spelling was not a struggle for her and it wasn't a struggle for me. Um, I definitely worked hard in school. It's not like everything just came easy, you know, to me. Like sure. I definitely was a kid who studied and like, you know, I, I, I worked hard. So I think there are people that just naturally like don't have to put in that much effort and mm-hmm. have success. I was not that kid. Like I definitely worked hard mm-hmm. um, and had success, but I didn't struggle with like, you know, those basic beginning, you know, things like learning to read, write and spell. And for read, um, you know, I think the initial mom instinct is what have I done wrong? Like I'm not, you know, it must be my fault that he's struggling. It must be that I'm working too much. Maybe I'm not reading enough. And, and a lot of that happens and gets told to you by schools also, like, are you reading? And are you, and I'm like, yeah, every night, like I was reading to Kenzie when Reed was in my tummy, like he's been hearing me read before he was ever even earthbound, you know? And, um, but I, I think initially, and this is also probably my personality, be, you know, that I'm like immediately like, what am I doing, you know, wrong? Mm. Um, and so then I went into like, I got to fix this mode, mm-hmm. you know, not knowing that there was something else going on. 
Um, and I, I think the other like, you know, big mistake I made during that time was, um, really, you know, drilling him with sight words and spelling tests and, you know, trying to get him to be able to memorize, you know, all of these things. He's a smart kid. Um, he's always been a really like just bright, happy, joyful kid, um, really creative, wildly like able to take things apart and put them back together. Like a skill set I do not have, you know, like, I mean, <laughs> I very remember technical. Yes. Yes. And, and like, you know, he'd make booby traps that worked, you know, at three and four years old where my daughter would be furious, but I would be like, that's amazing. Like, how did he do that? Mm -hmm. He did the story I always tell is like taking fishing wire and he watched like Home Alone. So of course he was inspired. Heck yeah. And as we all were. <laughs> right? So Reed goes into Kenzie's bathroom unbeknownst to the rest of us. And at this point, I think he's like four and he ties it to the um, toilet handle, the faucet in the shower, the faucet in the sink and the doorknob so that when you would open the door, all it would turn water. on all the water and flush the toilet. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, and she was so angry, at you know, he, yes. So that's what I'm saying. I like, can do that now. I know me either. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like, it, it's like, so at that time, like he's not wearing his letters, but he, but he is doing that. And so everybody's like, Jeb, seriously, settle down. It, he's going to learn mm -hmm. his letters. You know, like he, he is obviously very smart. His vocabulary is very high. He talks like an adult, like all of that stuff's there. He's just a boy. He doesn't really care about letters yet. Mm -hmm. And like that fit my gender stereotype, I guess, for maturity level of boys and whatever. And not that I didn't have friends who had boys that knew, knew their letters and all those things, but they also weren't doing, you know, successful home alone bathroom booby traps. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, okay, there's a balance. It doesn't have to be letters and letter sounds. Mm. And so that, that pushed along until, you know, first grade. And, and by really like probably the first month in first grade, um, his personality started to change. So that like joyful, confident face and like smile slowly, but surely was fading. And mm -hmm. I wasn't sure what it was, but it was very obviously happening this at the same time we had just sold our home that we had lived in, in college park with our, like both neighbors, you know, one set like best friends and then the other side, like grandparents to us and the kids, like such a lovely, but we bought it. We bought a piece of property. We're building a house. We moved into a rental. Mm -hmm. So that was like, not, I, you know, like that's a big transition, transition, upheaval kind sure. of thing. So I'm kind of attributing, you know, it to that, that we just left these like beloved, you know, neighbors on both sides and, you know, love our home. Just, you know, we're going to, do this other thing. And mm -hmm. so, and these little and only six. And so I kind of attributed it to that, but it got to where he didn't want to go to school. Um, the mornings became like, it used to be easy, you know, everybody's getting ready and backpacks on and lunch is packed and we're out the door. And it, you know, it was like a struggle to get him out of bed. I'm mm. fighting with him to get his clothes on. I'm fighting with him to get brush his teeth and shoes and socks. And I'm like, this is, and it's disrupting the whole house you know, because there's fighting and arguing and begging and pleading and crying. And, you know, my daughter's like, this is ridiculous. Right. And, 
Let's get a move on. Yeah, like it was so out of, we were so out of sorts. And, you know, finally in like November of his first grade year, and he was calling home sick every day. I mean, it was, it was, it was not good. Mm. Um, And, you know, one night I was just drilling him on like spelling test. And he finally said to me, you know, he just, he burst into tears and he was like, mom, like, please, you have to stop making me go to school. I, I don't belong there. Everybody makes fun of me and says, Reed can't read. And, you know, I, I feel worthless. I mean, it was the words out of a six-year-old, like little cherub cheek, blonde headed. It was like the words of a 50 year old person. Who's like looking back on their life and feeling like I didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Or Mm. I, you know, I have these skill sets, but I didn't use them. Like, what am I going to do with my life? Kind of thing at six. Mm -hmm. It was the second single most devastating moment of my life. Mm -hmm. So as you may know, or may not know at all, cocktails are kind of my thing. At the end of a long day, or any day really, crafting a drink, whether it's simple or more complex, I really look forward to a delicious cocktail. Plus it makes all conversations better. Tito's Handmade Vodka is always a go-to for me. It's the perfect thing to have on hand to make just about any cocktail. That is what I love about Tito's. It's so versatile. Anything from a Moscow mule to an elderflower martini to a white Russian. Plus, Tito's Handmade Vodka has won a million awards, but for real. It's been distilled six times and won the SF World Spirit Championship. So the next time you are looking for an incredibly drinkable cocktail, pick up some Tito's Handmade Vodka. Plus, you should head over to titosvodka.com to read up more about their story and pick up some delightful recipes. This episode of Cocktails in Conversation is brought to you by The Dinner Party Project. The Dinner Party Project is all about connecting humans around the dinner table. Right now, we are mostly based in Orlando, Florida. Whether it's joining seven strangers in an intimate setting around a dinner table or sitting in the street of Orange Avenue with 100 others watching flamethrowers, we love helping people feel connected to others and their city. We also offer private parties, so if you have a birthday, anniversary, team building dinner, or corporate event coming up, we can create a custom memorable event that you and your guests won't soon forget. We also help brands connect with their consumers by exposing their product in an elevated way to their target demographic. So if you live in the Orlando area and haven't joined us yet, what are you waiting for? We can't wait to hear your story around the dinner table. For more information, you can visit us at thedinnerpartyproject.co. And, um, you know, he, he said that the teacher was making him stand up in front of the class. And I mean, just this whole, like, he finally just, everything he'd been holding in, he just let out. And, you know, I think he was so ashamed. He was trying to protect me from it because mm-hmm. he knew that I know that he's so smart and capable and in his mind he's feeling that like he is but but he's not being that he's not having that kind of success at school and Mm -hmm. i don't think he wanted me to know that he wasn't being successful in school he didn't want to disappoint me he's like a little me you Mm -hmm. know he doesn't want to disappoint his mom um not knowing that he couldn't possibly you know disappoint me 
And so I went into the school and long story short, we ended up getting him, um, you know, tested to see if there was any kind of, you know, learning difference. Um, not because the school recommended it, but because we were they not weren't making... picking up on like him struggling through some of these basic reading, yeah. writing, spelling. Yeah. The, the, they knew that he wasn't where he should be compared to his classmates. Mm-hmm. But the two things they said were one, it's effort. Like he's just not trying. He's, he's being lazy. And I said, listen, uh, let me just tell you one thing we are not being is lazy. I'm torturing him at home, torturing him. And he's got a reading tutor. He's had a reading tutor for two years. Like mm. who does that? You mm-hmm. know, like that's not normal. Um, you know, so I don't know what it looks like at school, but I'm just telling you this little boy works his heart out. Um, and then he's got a mom who's like pushing available. Yeah. Not and, everyone has that luxury. And we have resources and access to all mm-hmm. the things this is not, you know, uh, oh, well, this kid doesn't have access to stuff and that mm. that's what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I asked them, do you have any suggestions? And they're like, sounds like you're doing everything right. Um, everybody catches up by third grade. And, you know, I really the re- the catalyst for testing him was not only the mom instinct that had been there a long time. I mean, really, since he was like three, I was worried that he didn't know his letters and letter sounds. Um, but I had asked them if they would not make him stand up in front of the class to read unless he raised his hand. Like, I'm like, if he participates and he wants to, by all means, Mm. but please don't, if he is like in the corner praying on all that's holy, that you don't call him on him, Mm -hmm. that you not do that because he's not reading. And they said that they considered that an accommodation and without a diagnosis of some kind of learning difficulty that they would not do that. So I was like, where do I have to go? And they said, well, I think you're just going to spend a bunch of money to find out that he's just not trying that hard. And I was like, um, um, it's time to figure that out. You know, if that's the case, then I guess I got to come down really hard on him, but I don't think that's the case. I also, you know, didn't probably want the answer, Mm -hmm. um, at that moment. But, um, but it was time to know, you mm-hmm. know? So anyway, we got him a full like neuropsycho, uh, educational evaluation sounds terrible. I hate the name of it. I think that's another one of the million reasons mm-hmm. people don't do it. It sounds weird, you know? Um, and, and they're expensive. So you also have to have resources to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And you usually have to do it during the work day. And so you've got to be able to take your child for a couple of days and go do that. And mm-hmm. they miss school and all those things. So there's so many barriers. Um, but we found out that he has um, dyslexia and dysgraphia. And really just in the last year when he was home, like during the learning distance period, um, learned that he has AD, ADD as well, mm-hmm. which is a really common comorbidity with dyslexia, at least 50%. Mm-hmm. And with boys, it's like 70%. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, the truth is I really didn't know what dyslexia was. I think like most people, when we first got the diagnosis, I thought that it was reading backwards or writing Mm -hmm. backwards. And, you know, they suggested, you know, you have to have a tutor in Orton Gillingham, which of course I'd never heard of either. Um, and, and you know, that this, that's, he has to have that. So I think I'm going to find this Orton Gillingham tutor, whatever the heck that means. 
and he or she is going to teach Reed how to not read backwards and not write backwards mm -hmm. and that that's all dyslexia is mm. and that, you know, poof, he'll get it and, and that will be done with it. Um, that is not the case. Mm. And, um, but, you know, I was naive enough that I, you know, started researching and looking for an Orton-Gillingham tutor. And this time, this was four years ago in January, um, there was only one person in our area that was certified at any level in the Orton-Gillingham Academy to tutor a student with dyslexia, but one in five have dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So, of course, she had a wait list that was really long. And because she has this unique skill set that's so important and expensive to get certified to mm -hmm. even be able to do that, it's expensive to go to those, mm -hmm. you know, folks. But she was like an earth angel for us. And she just said, you know, I, I'm full, but I can call you um, if I have, you know, somebody that cancels at the last minute, but you've got to be able to drop everything and, and get here. Moments notice. Yeah. Yeah. So that meant no more like activities and things like that you know, after school for Reed, he at that time was playing t-ball and was just loved it and had the sweetest little group of friends. And, you know, it was something he could be successful at in mm -hmm. front of his peers, even if like during the school day, you know, he wasn't killing it and reading, writing, spelling. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you got to be able to read. It's a basic human skill. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we had to take him out of that to be able to go to tutoring whenever we could go. And he wasn't getting it to fidelity. Like, you know, you really should have it five days. Really, kids should get this during the school day. They should not have to be going to private tutors to get this type of instruction. But right. but for the most part, that's how that works. And um, so you can't go five days a week, you know, because that's just not realistic. And that's really what they need. So we were getting two days a week, sometimes maybe three days a week. But within like, I don't know, I would say a month or less, he started reading billboards. He started reading, you know, signs when we were walking into restaurants. Mm. He, he could read, you know, words on the menu, the things that his sister was doing at like three and four years old. You know, now at seven. Seven, yeah. yeah he was he was starting to but do. things were starting to click. But it was happening. Right. Yeah. And it's like you could see his brain and his like desire to learn mm -hmm. and to be successful and to be able to do what it seemed like was happening so easily for everyone else. He was so primed for it, but he just needed the right mm. kind of instruction. And he wanted so badly to please us. I mean, I think that's one of the other things, like the things we say about children that are struggling, like if they're if there's behavior, they're not doing what, like that they're lazy and they're not trying mm. and they're bad kids. And, you know, there is no human being that was born wanting to disappoint adults period like nobody wants to not be successful mm -hmm. we may get to a point in our lives where we've been failed and pushed beaten aside down. and beaten down and mm -hmm. feeling worthwhile that we say that that's how we feel right and maybe even that's how we go through the rest of our lives but there is no little tiny human being that is in kindergarten and first and second and third grade that is um wanting to disappoint or to fail period and so we make so many mistakes when we don't understand mm -hmm. why something you know is a certain way mm -hmm. when we don't have answers we give explanations that absolve ourselves of any kind of responsibility 
and place blame anywhere else but ourselves. And we do it in all things, but to do it in education is catastrophic. Mm -hmm. Um, these kids are so young, you know, the, the, the need to learn to read is expected so early Mm -hmm. and you have not concreted and developed your self-concept and your self-esteem yet. And, you know, when parents and teachers and adults Mm -hmm. that, you know, you look up to tell you that you're lazy and not trying and stupid and you can't go to college and, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you're not as good as your classmates and you're not as smart. What that does to a human being, even if they overcome it and they're really successful as adults, because I've talked to almost a hundred of those folks now in the work that we do. There is not a single one of those human beings that doesn't sob when they talk about their school experience and the things that were said to them. Mm -hmm. So how did that launch you into the space that you are now Yeah, in the work that you're doing? Well, I mean, two things. I saw the impact that Orton Gillingham had on my son. And when he was initially tested and he was like in the sixth percentile for reading for, you know, a six, at that time he was, you know, six, seven years old. I mean, if you saw read and somebody gave you the report of somebody in the 90th percentile, and reads report and you looked at him and talked to him and you were like, guess which one of these reports belongs to this child? You would not have picked the one that belonged to read, period, the end. Um, But that's the one that belonged to read. Um, OG has completely given this little boy his life back. You know, he is and now in the 90th percentile for fifth graders across all fifth graders, not just fifth graders with dyslexia because of this type of instruction. But also what I learned through the process is that 66% of our nation's children and in Orange County, it's 58% of our kids cannot read at grade level. Well, that yes. should not be. That should not be. Yeah. People don't know that statistic. That is... Those are federal numbers and those are numbers coming out of our state and our and our district. Mm. Um, there is a reading crisis in this country and it's because of the way we teach reading, writing, and spelling in school. Mm-hmm. We essentially expect kids to memorize words and 34% of our population can do that. I'm one of those people. My daughter's one of those people strong working memory. I only have to see a word a couple of times. If it's an easy word, just once. If it's a, you know, big, complicated, Mm multi-syllabic word with a crazy spelling, I may have to see it two or three times before I can spell it correctly and recognize it, you know, when I see it. But that's only 34% of our population. The other 66% need direct, explicit, multi-sensory phonics instruction to really become proficient readers. Mm. So 20% of that 66% are dyslexic. They are never going to make the gains that they need to make if they don't get this type of instruction. The other 46% are our, you know, B minus C, D students. They're the ones that score, barely score a three on the FSA, like get by by the skin of their teeth, you know, but like they're not doing well and they don't feel great about themselves. And 
these are the kids that, you know, schools are like, well, they're, you know, she's great at art or, you know, he's Mm. a wonderful mathematician. Like not everybody's going to be great at everything. And that's true. But there's enough to model by Yes. pass. Yes. Right. Because grade level is a very low standard. (laughs) It's not like these, you know, you're killing it if you're grade level. So um, this type of instruction, Orton-Gillingham, is based on the science of reading. Mm. And so, you know, in my in my research of like how to help read, I start stumbling upon all this other stuff, like not just dyslexia, but like this this crisis that impacts all of us. Mm-hmm. And then I start reading about, you know, we've known since 2000 that this is the type of instruction that we should be providing. It is best practice for all brains. It's not it's not just for dyslexic mm. kids. Now, it makes sure that we don't leave them behind. And by the way, these are really bright kids. If mm-hmm. you're dyslexic, you're at least average to above average intelligence. Part of the definition of it is that it's an unexpected difficulty in learning how to read, write, and spell. And it's unexpected because they're so bright. So like reads a great example right. of that, right? Where you're like, right. no, this kid should be able to read. Like, listen to him talk. Listen to his vocabulary. He clearly... Um, be able to like processing through his brain. He's doing that in other outlets. Yes. At a high level. At a really high level. The levitors are a barrier. Yes. So this is why, you know, the teachers are like, no, he's being lazy. Like there's no reason he shouldn't be able to read. When I talk to him, he talks to me like a sixth grader. He has the vocabulary. He has the cognitive ability to do this. He must just not be trying. Sure. But with dyslexia, kids have... um, a struggle with the symbol, you know, of a letter and then the sound that it makes. And in the English language, you know, the the letter A makes four different sounds mm-hmm. um, and is spelled five different ways. So it's it's much more complicated than when, you know, we were in kindergarten and we're like, A, apple, ah. Well, but A also says A, you know, like <laughs> it's so much more complicated. And so that's what Orton Gillingham is, is it is giving them all of the different rules mm. and where those different spellings can show up in, you know, a word. Sure. Um, and then then it also goes into like Greek and Latin and root words and those types of things. So like that's the stuff if you're a college bound student. Those are the things you're going to see on the SAT and the ACT. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that you're going to see in the more complex textbooks. And that's also why it is so wildly beneficial to our kids that even even the kids that are gifted mm. and naturally picked up reading, you know, on their home through osmosis like Kenzie did. Those kids don't know how to break apart a word that they've never seen before. Mm. And so, you know, if they get Orton Gillingham, they are able to really tackle those really complex things and words that they've never seen before right. in the SAT and ACT because they know what the root word means and they know what the affixes mean. And you can move them apart and put them back together and make a new word and know that this word means something mm-hmm. different. So that's why it really benefits you know, all kids. And spelling, what we're seeing in, in the district is that even gifted students are improving their spelling because they're able to you know, encode, decoding is breaking down a word, you know, to sound it out and, mm. and to pronounce it. But encoding is knowing how to break it down a word that you've heard and spell it. Sure. Yeah. So seeing this within your own family structure, how did you then be able to say, we're not the only ones, we're not, I'm 
I have resources, I have intelligence, I have the capacity. And what a gift your life was to be able to offer that. But then how kind of like you said, I see this with all the privileges that I have. And then how did you be able, how are you able to engage with others that might be in that same, yeah. same position? Well, we started with or without resources. Yeah, we, we started our CF in October of 2019. And part of it was that piece. I'm like, if one in five have dyslexia, how come I don't know anybody? How come I'm talking about this? And all of my friends are looking at me like, mm, sorry that that's your problem. I'm like, we don't have that. Because <laughs> that's really how it was. Mm. Um, and so I was like, first like, of all, hello, hello, yeah, hello. like this can't be, mm. you know, that nobody, that nobody else is experiencing this. So I, I wanted to find that tribe of people. Um, and I thought other people have to be desperately needing this too. So the first thing we did was just a free community education event where we brought um, a speaker. His name is Jonathan Mooney. He's a three-time author. He's dyslexic, has ADHD, and he, he's, a, he's, a, um, he's a funny author. And the book was called Normal Sucks and sucks s-u-c-k-s and you know really talked about his story and he's really a gifted communicator and you know he came and spoke and we had over 350 people that had driven from all over the state of florida on a wednesday night at 6 30 in downtown orlando like at that point we didn't have a facebook page we had nothing like i honestly actually don't know how 350 people even knew mm. we were doing it but um it was so validating in that without having any way to communicate to people really that we were even doing this. There are so many people who are desperate for good content, to have meaningful fellowship with other people that are having this experience, mm -hmm. to have somebody else to talk to who gets it so that you're not feeling like you're all alone um, or there's something wrong with you or your child. There's so much shame associated around reading struggles mm -hmm. because everybody thinks that if you struggle to read, you must not be smart. And so as parents are like, what did we do wrong? You know, are we not smart or we're not, we're not making smart kids. The children of course feel terrible. And so it's like the secret in this nightmare shame spiral for people that is so unhealthy and like so shrouded and, misinformation that people are just desperate to talk about it. Mm. But the other piece was, like I say, with OG, it made it made and has made such a difference for Reed that, but it is very expensive. Um, and that whole process of after school tutoring and, you know, trying to get him there and he didn't want to go and he's not having activities and I'm not spending any time with my daughter at her stuff and she's resentful and we're not having dinner and my husband's mad and we're eating takeout every night. And, you know, we, we were the lucky ones mm. and we were falling apart. Um, by the grace of God, we stayed married by the grace of, you know, God. Um, we survived that season by the grace of God. We found the Christ school and they are, you know, using Orton Gillingham for all of their students and have a program, you know, specifically now for students with dyslexia. Like there were so many things that happened for us, but all of them required money, resources, time, mm -hmm. things that, and we didn't have a bunch of other trauma, you know, going on in our lives. Like our home was safe, you know, like we were in a safe community, like Andrew's job is secure and, mm -hmm. you know, they're, 
all these things that the vast majority of other families, you know, if you even pulled out one of those puzzle pieces for us, Mm -hmm. would we have made it? You know, I don't know. Um, And it's still hard, you know, like that we're still on the journey. Like for Reed, we have to create the next grade every year right now to make sure that he gets the Orton Gillingham piece he needs until he gets to high school. So we're still very much on the journey, but I realized that if we were struggling that badly and, and we had all the things, what in the world is happening for mm-hmm. everybody else? Mm-hmm. And the answer is every single thing we see in society that we're trying to figure out how to fix and we don't know how. And we have all these different organizations trying to deal with the end result of something. If we just dealt with it and helped prevent it from the very beginning at the root, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have to be worrying. The trajectory of your life would be changed. Completely. Yeah. Because if you look and see the the correlation, and it's not just a correlation, it is directly causal to literacy and early literacy. So before, you know, third grade. And what happens to individuals who cannot read by third grade? Um, we're talking homelessness. We're talking poverty. We're talking drug and alcohol abuse. We're talking mm-hmm. mental health issues, mm-hmm. suicide, you know, depression. We're talking about, you know, food and housing insecurity. Every single societal cause that we are trying to figure out as a society, how do we fix this? Why did it get so bad? What do we do differently? We have to teach our children how to read, every single one of them. And 95% of our population Mm -hmm. is cognitively able to read. People don't know that either. I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, if you grow up in a certain neighborhood and if you don't have access to certain things and if you don't have resources, we just have to accept that a certain amount of people Mm -hmm. aren't going to read. That is not true Mm -hmm. now if that allows you to get through the day so that you don't feel like this is something that you have to address now that's a separate topic sure but if that's what you believe to be true it is not true Mm -hmm. um and i don't know what i believed to be true prior to the last four years of you know education that i've gone on initially because I had to, and now because I want to Mm -hmm. now, because I see so clearly what we could be doing differently, um, to really make systemic change in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, it is making this type of training accessible to all teachers so that all kiddos, whether they ever can go get a psycho educational evaluation or not, they are in a classroom with a teacher Mm -hmm. that is able to support every single student. Mm-hmm. regardless of where they are or regardless of what subgroup they're in, regardless of their socioeconomic status, what their home life's like. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, literacy prevents, will prevent all the things, but if you can read, you have a choice. Mm-hmm. If you can't, at some point, you really life is don't. Life stunted. Yeah, yeah. You really don't have a choice. You know, it, it's even things like, so the cost in the US for illiteracy is a trillion dollars a year. And people are like, well, how do you get there? Well, if you get 
to the doctor's office and you get a prescription and you don't know how to read the prescription and how to take your medicine. These are how people end up in hospitals that don't have mm-hmm. health insurance that have to be, you know, taken care of because they couldn't read how to take it's compounded. Yeah, like sure. it, it's so, you know, it's it is it it touches everything. You know, you you may have dropped out of school and have a family. You you may have you know be a fifteen year old or a sixteen year old who has a child, and you've been kicked out of your you know home, or you've got other siblings and those types of things happening in your own home, and you have to go find a job. But if you can't fill out a job application and you can't follow the instructions to get to the interview, assuming you can fill out the job application or somebody else helps you, mm-hmm. or you finally get the job, mm-hmm. but it's at Smoothie King and you can't read how to make the strawberry smoothie that somebody, or you know what I mean? Like it's so, there's so many ways you can try to get around the issue, but at some point you can't. Mm-hmm. And we all have to be able at a minimum to feed ourselves, to house ourselves in some way, to take care of our families if we have them. And, you know, it's like, what are you going to do if you don't have those skill sets Mm -hmm. and you can't get there by an honorable means? Mm. What are you going to do to get there? Mm. At a desperate situation, you know, desperate decisions get made Mm -hmm. and, um, and they can't be taken back, you know? Well, thank you for all you're doing with the yeah. Reed Foundation and just kind of your journey to that. And, you know, your reality was becoming aware to that and then not becoming blind to that, you know? And um, I'm so glad that you're putting in the good work and that you have the capacity, you know, like not, not everyone would have that position to say, I can dedicate you know, my life to this and then being able to invite other people that have the same needs to get the resources that they need and the um, life trajectory kind of like change and ability that we, that you are being able to, to hand to people to say like, this is not something that we can be blind to and that we need to be able to have um, these folks to be able to have the reality of being able to read so that they have the options to invest in their own life. Yeah. And do the things that they want to do. Yeah. It really, it's a team of people, you know, thankfully Mm -hmm. at this point, there's a big group of us that work really hard at this every day Mm -hmm. and have their children have had, you know, the same success. And so we know, and what we do is we provide the training currently for free to public school educators um, and at a cost of $200 to anybody else. So related professionals, private school mm-hmm. teachers, homeschool parents. Um, and, you know, the cost is typically anywhere from 800 to $3,000 per teacher typically. So, mm. you know, this training is really, really important and teachers really need it, but it is cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so you tend to have to have resources as a school to be able to get the training and then, you know, vicariously, then those schools are very expensive to go to. So that's what makes it so inaccessible, you know, to so many. And then we also provide implementation support for teachers after they get trained. So they don't just get trained. We have, um, you know, two incredible directors of OG implementation and just hired another teacher who will start in June 
um, who then go into the schools after teachers get trained and mm. watch them actually do lessons and give them error correction and support and do various other free you know, teacher trainings throughout the month, um, throughout the school year to provide just additional you know, support and let teachers ask questions and, um, and get answers and just kind of create a community even amongst the teachers mm-hmm. um, as they kind of learn and get better to ask each other, like, what are you doing? Have you had a student that had this issue? Um, and I think the other big thing is just raising awareness that this isn't just a dyslexia issue and it really does mm-hmm. impact all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you have a national merit scholar as a child, they would be better at reading, writing, and spelling if they got this type of instruction, mm-hmm. you know, from the very beginning. And I think all parents, we want our kids to be as successful as they can be and reach their highest and best potential. Yeah. You know, that's our job. Thank you so much for sharing your story yeah, with us. You. Yeah, thank absolutely. We're going to move on, keep on uh, moving on a little bit, but um the next topic that we're going to talk about is also one of my very favorite things, and we could be here another okay. two hours, but it's the Enneagram. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, so people should be familiar if they're listening into this podcast. Um, so when you, we had chatted a little bit um, previously about kind of maybe where you would land on the Enneagram, it's nine numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and within that, I think you landed maybe on what do you feel like you most would (laughs) self-identify with or people see you as, uh, I think I'm a raging one, a raging one. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. Probably with the wing two, which is the giver, the helper, the wanting to support Mm -hmm. other people. So the one on the Enneagram uh, is uh, called the reformer um, or the perfectionist mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, ones are a greatly needed asset in, in a sense of seeing what can be accomplished, what can be changed within a system, trying to bring out the best outcome. And so very um, sometimes direct mm-hmm. in the ways that they want to do that. Sometimes very black and white in the way that they see things. Um, how do you feel like that that's kind of shown up in your world and in your life? It sounds like maybe from very young, some of those things were already in your DNA mm-hmm. and in your story. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm definitely very justice, like, you know, oriented. oriented. I remember even in like high school, you know, there's some type of like personality, employ like that the guidance counselors you know gave to all of the students and mine came out like lawyer or judge (laughs) um so i you know i i think i've all really my whole life have kind of identified you know sort of that way and um i definitely um am very hard on myself like i think you know, the perfectionist piece. I don't necessarily expect that of others. I do have expectations of others for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think most of most of that is like self-directed, you know, in terms of, um, you know, being hard on myself and- Your and, own inner, inner monologue. Yes, for sure. Um, but I definitely see that there's- something that is fundamentally broken and that we really do have the science and knowledge about how to 
improve that. I don't want to say fix, but drastically improve, mm-hmm. you know? And um, it, I that Enneagram one piece of me is like, I don't understand why we know this and we're not <laughs> doing it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. come on. Um, so uh, for sure, that's like what drives me, you know, it, it, it's what drives me. It's what keeps me up at night. It's, um, it's relentless, you Mm -hmm. know, like there is a relentlessness to this because it's so urgent and, um, it's like, I'm thankful that I have this, like there's things about it. I love, you know, like that I think are so great and love about my personality, but it's also the thing that um, you know, the shadow work. Yeah. That yeah. allows you to like never sleep. And, mm. um, and I don't, I'm not always like this, but I'm in this phase of, you know, where the, like the sleeping piece and, mm. you know, whatever, that there's such a sense of urgency, mm-hmm. you know, to what we do and kids that are struggling right now, what they don't have is time for us to get our S together. Mm-hmm. And that I feel that sense of, you know, urgency all the time. Mm. Um, and no, that's a lot to feel like you have to carry that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and I, I know that that shouldn't be just, um, mine to carry. And it's just that, you know, I have a lot of conversations and that empathy piece that is, um, very innate Mm. in me, um, and talking to another mom, you know, who's, on this journey, maybe where I was four years ago, or maybe has been dealing with this even longer than me. Um, and their child is, is in a bad way Mm. and is asking for help and we can't do it. You know, we don't have the ability to do it. Um, that's really hard for me. Mm. You know, that's really hard for me. How do you feel like understanding your Enneagram has shown up in relationships mm. like with your spouse, with your coworkers, with your life friends? Yeah, I feel like um, I definitely have an expectation of I recognize that I have a gear that most people don't have. So I don't have that expectation on people that they would run on this same kind of gear that I do. Um, but I do have an expectation of like honesty and integrity that those are massive issues for Mm. me. Like if I get a sense that I've been lied to or misled, Mm -hmm. um, that is like, I have a visceral, I have sort of a visceral reaction to that. Um, I'm certain obviously that comes from a lot of other places. And so it bubbles up in a lot of different ways, but I'm, I'm pretty unforgiving in, in that context Mm. of like being lied to. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to be that way, Mm -hmm. but, um, I'm definitely, I really struggle there a lot, but I, you know, and then in terms of just expectations in terms of like, I do expect people to work hard and, um, and do their best, you know, and like communicate when you don't know something and like, that's okay. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm a pretty forgiving person when somebody's honest, Mm -hmm. you know, like 
I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Like I need help. Um, I said this and I shouldn't have, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm really forgiving of, of honest, like I need help in whatever it is. And like, I go into the two mode immediately when somebody's like that with me. But if somebody's trying to hide something from me mm -hmm. or like try to pull the wool over, I'm like the unhealthy one mode, you know, like on that. Eights and ones are very similar in that yeah. way. And mm -hmm. I'm an eight. Yeah. And so some for me that I've had to open my eyes to is like when trust has been breached, it's like game over. Mm -hmm. And that's a very hard reality for me to look at mm -hmm. sometimes to understand that there's different reasons that people have for maybe not being forthright in that way and and with the enneagram i think for me part of it the hope is to have more grace yeah. for myself <laughs> and for my for other people yeah. and so with that grace it's like okay well then we need to extend that grace yeah in those ways and in those times where you when people are not truthful mm -hmm. and that is like one of the biggest barriers sometimes in my friendships to say and in family stuff is like just be honest yeah. with me like even if it's not maybe what I want to hear I will value that more than you trying to like pile on something on top of it to make it go away because it will inevitably it will mostly inevitably come out and with that kind of feeling of betrayal it's very hard yeah to restore and not that it can't be because it had like there have been things that have been restored mm -hmm. and that is the beauty of life because we need to forgive yeah but it is a harder i think for ones and threes and eights to forgive mm -hmm. in that way and then to say but we need to because none of us are perfect yeah. right and that ones think like oh of course i'm not perfect but in a lot of ways, we really expect ourselves to be perfect. Yeah. But not we, but like ones sometimes would say it's a harder thing to not have that as a reality. Well, I mean, because I I will have the uncomfortable conversation where, mm -hmm. you know, I own it or, yeah, you know, yeah. like, um, or just, I don't know, something feels wrong. Like, and I, if there's something like, I need you to tell me because I don't know, like I mm, have those. I can't read your mind. Yeah. Like yeah. I have those kinds of conversations. I actually just had one just recently, you know, and you know, the, the, the person was like, I'm ship shape, like everything's good. And it doesn't feel like everything's good. Mm. Um, but I'm just going to have to accept that, you know, like I've given you the opportunity to say that, it, you know, whatever it is. It's dialogue. Yeah, yeah. You know, but if you're not, if you're, if you're not going to engage, but again, that goes back to the other, you know, the other numbers on the Enneagram and where is that person coming from mm. that they don't feel like, not necessarily because of an experience with me, but because of an experience with somebody else that they can't be direct and honest, mm -hmm. even, you know, even when I'm talking about how much I value that and that that's really important. And there's not anything we can't overcome if I know those, you know, if I know those things, mm -hmm. um, because I don't think a lot of people trust that because of, you know, other experiences that they have that, no, no, if I'm honest, I, I, there's going to be a consequence for this. Mm -hmm. It can't possibly be true, you know, that there's not. Yeah. Um, and so I get that, you know, I get that not everybody, you know, can do that, but I really value it in people. Um, 
when, when I, you know, those are people probably I connect with the most, the ones that are really raw and does not everything has to be perfect. That's Mm -hmm. the irony. I think of like being a one and it being like perfectionist that that's like the (laughs) reformer slash perfectionist that I really, um, value Mm -hmm. in people, authenticity and not being perfect and allowing me to be authentic and not be perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and say that this is what I'm struggling with or, you know, just this conversation that we've had. I mean, this is not necessarily the words of a perfectionist. Um, I obviously could have told a much different story of my childhood (laughs) that would have been painted a lot different, but it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been the truth. Sure. I think I spent, I will probably spend the rest of my life putting myself in a position where I am trying to be as honest and authentic, you know, as possible. Um, because it's so important in the work that I, that I do now, it's also something I just value in general, but it's, it's so important, but it's exhausting, you know, mm-hmm. like it's a, um, cause you're putting in the work and yeah. the work takes it out of you. Yeah. But it's also, you're not going to grow unless you are honest. And sometimes it's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the Enneagram has been such a gift to me to be able to like, look at those things and then see myself dialed in like, oh, I'm not the only one that mm-hmm. is, that operates like this or like, oh, a four is very different than how I operate, how my brain was built, how I see the world. And they have so many beautiful things to offer the yeah. world that I don't. Right. And so yeah. being able to look at that with honesty as well. And, mm-hmm. oh, you're coming from this place when I say this or my directness triggers something. Yeah. Okay. Let's dial that back and let's look at this and let's look how we're both built uniquely. And I can maybe see that a little bit better. Yeah. Part of it's people knowing it also and being able to articulate it. Like on our team, almost everybody's done the Enneagram. So they all, almost everybody knows their number, Mm -hmm. but like for our whole volunteer team, I'm thinking about doing this thing for like, it's the temperament types. Mm Mm-hmm which is a little bit easier to do since it's four, you know, as opposed to nine, um, because not everybody's going to do a deep dive, you know, into, into Enneagram. But I think it's so important to know this because, um, you know, the way that I would give somebody feedback Mm -hmm. and the way I want to get, you know, feedback, whether it's friendship, relationship, um, you know, or work, is not the same as, you know, other types and the way that I come at that, um, you know, would crush somebody unintentionally, you know, and, but it would be like as kind as somebody could possibly give it to me. Right. You know, give it to me straight. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You know, um, we can deal with it. Yeah. And so like, just knowing that about each other as, as like just friends, and, you know, certainly in relationship and certainly in close working relationship mm-hmm. is so powerful. Yes. yes. So yeah. like getting everybody to know it, I think, is the key to be able to say, you know, hey, I'm a four, I'm a seven. I'm, a, yeah. you know, like it's a totally different. Dynamic. And how powerful that is to have a working environment where you have that awareness. Like I wish that I would have known about some of these things earlier, even dealing with my own team. Um so what a blessing the Enneagram is. In that. Yeah. So we're going to move to the final topic, which is actually my favorite of all of these, um, which is rest. <laughs> so how do we 
take a step back from the world and um, the Sabbath means to stop. So us taking, taking a break, um, renewing, uh, re physically resting, um, playing, discovering, being creative. How do we rest in a sense that renews us in, even if it's in a short time in a week? Um, but how do we step back from the world so we can offer a more whole sense of ourself to the world? And what is rest? What are some practices of rest? What does that look like in your life? Well, I know you and I talked about this before. Um, I am truly atrocious at this at the moment, mm -hmm. um, but acutely aware that I'm atrocious mm. um, at it at the moment and do not want to be. Mm. Don't want to emulate that for my children. Don't want that for myself. Um, I think this is where the oneness, you know, comes in, mm -hmm. honestly, too, that, you know, we tend to be the type of personality that we're driven by something else. And so you're constantly thinking, I just have to finish this one last thing. I can't go into a meeting not being prepared. You know, I can't. And so um, there is such a level of demand right now and and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And we are a small team that um, it does feel a little bit like I don't have much of a choice because I'm not going to go into a meeting not prepared. Mm -hmm. One, because I don't want to waste somebody else's time, first of all. And two, like we're trying to accomplish something and I don't want to be an absolute doofus and, and, you know, worthless when I'm trying to do something that's important, but, um, or that I feel is important. But every time I think I'm taking a step toward having a little bit more balance, <laughs> something else happens that like totally blows that up. Mm -hmm. But, um, what I was doing prior to things really being so busy was, you know, Fridays, I, Fridays, I was not supposed to have, you know, meetings. And that was, you know, to be like a day like today where I could be with a friend and, you know, have coffee or lunch or whatever. Um, it, it be able to work out on my time frame and not feel stressed that I can only do 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Cause I've got to get back and be ready. Um, I love to run. That's one of mm -hmm. my favorite pastimes and for me while it's not your body resting it is my mind mm -hmm. resting yeah so um that is something that i definitely an outlet. yes for sure um and then honestly like being able to just be home mm -hmm. with my little crew and that's getting less and less because kenzie's you know a teenager and about to be driving and all those things so she's so I think I'm I'm desiring that even more now because I know this is the last summer before she's got a car and I'm basically <laughs> going to see her when she wants to see us and whatever. I think rest for me is um, just time with, you know, our family mm -hmm. um, or like my brother and sister-in-law and their family. They're like, we're very, very close to them or close friends and family just being able to... Um, sit and eat together and, you know, do something that we all like playing cards, like just simple. Mm -hmm. um, those sorts of things are like so peaceful to me. We have a place actually in Cashers, um, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and it takes me about a day to fully unwind. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes too, depending mm -hmm. on how wound up I am before we get there. Sure. But there is something about being there. Um, that is like so good for my soul. Mm. I mean, just 
I don't, I don't, I don't even know, mm-hmm. you know, what it is. Like people that have lived there a long time talk about that this, that like just the mountain air, they used to send people to go to cashers to like breathe in the air as like a healing um, process. And maybe it's because I've heard that like lore and think that's true right. or whatever, but there's something about it that's so, um, you know, peaceful for me. And so I think it's just finding things like that, even if it's, you know, not full days of, of rest, but those moments and those people and those activities and sometimes even just working, you know, but in, in an environment like the mountains where I just feel like a certain sense of peace, that's where I kind of get my rest. So if you could have one day, a full day, full 24 hours, it could be here, it could be anywhere. Money is of no consequence. It could be by yourself, it could be with people part of the day. But if you had an ideal 24 hours of rest, uh, what would it look like? Mm, gosh, I feel like it changes depending on you know, what, like what's happening in my life and, and where I am. There are days where I would say that, you know, a day alone, Mm -hmm. like I'm somebody that does enjoy, you know, Mm -hmm. being alone, um, to just, you know, exercise and be able to read something that I want to read. That's not specific to Mm -hmm. (laughs) dyslexia or literacy, Mm -hmm. you know, just like pleasure, um, you know, reading and just really just getting to relax and eat good and, you know, just feel that would be something that would be lovely. But also, like I say, I think I feel this at this moment, I feel this acute sense that my daughter is about to be less and less available, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. And so we are actually going to go to the beach together to 30A, which we've Mm -hmm. never done. I love the architecture and you know, just think that it's beautiful. Yeah. Just the water. I'm definitely somebody who, you know, I'm an Aquarius. So I have a, you know, I'm a water sign. I think that there's something about that, that, um, I'm really excited about and feels like it will be relaxing and peaceful. And it's with my sister-in-law and my niece too, who my sister-in-law is like a soul sister to me. She's a safe place. She's Mm. probably the first like true friend in my life that, um, I, I know always has my back, like even when I'm not around and there's like, there's something Safety. very peaceful. Yes. About, um, plus she's just freaking funny and fun <laughs> and you know, it's like, all she's all the things. So mm-hmm. anything with my sister-in-law, Micah, um, makes me super, super happy. I love it. That sounds beautiful. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's fun. Your story and all the things. If people were to find what you're doing, how would people find you on the internet and online world? Yeah. So our website, unfortunately, is very long, um, but it is www.read, and that's R-E-E-D, charitablefoundation.org because it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my email, if people wanted to reach me directly, is jen, J-E-N, at readcharitablefoundation.org. And we are on um, LinkedIn and YouTube and Facebook and Instagram. Um, no TikTok because I'm too old. Um, and, no, and, no, and I don't have Snapchat. I, don't, I can't figure all those things out. But... Um, but our YouTube channel is actually really cool. It has a lot of videos of different stories and our mission and mm. things like that. Our website has them too. So 
you know, if people wanted to learn more or if this topic specifically impacted them, those would be great places. But I love people reaching out to me and um, I'm always happy to help Mm -hmm. in whatever way I can, even if it's just to listen. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Until the next time. We did it. Yay. Thank you a million times over for listening to Cocktails and Conversation podcast. I hope you have enjoyed all of it. If you have, would you do me a huge favor and rate, comment, and subscribe for more Cocktails and Conversation? 